Welcome to Tales from the Waystone, a King Killer Chronicle reread podcast. We are your hosts, Will and Phoenix. Let's get into it. Welcome to Tales from the Waystone, episode 42, What You Leave Behind, where we will be looking at chapters 82 through 83 of The Name of the Wind through the lens of Grace Notes. Just as a reminder, we are getting close to the end of The Name of the Wind, maybe four or five episodes, maybe less, and we would absolutely love your feedback on anything you'd like us to discuss in kind of a intermission between this book and The Wise Man's Fear. I know I am going to go back and re-listen to both books before we start recording The Wise Man's Fear. And right now we're thinking of either Lovecraft Country, the book, not the show, or maybe The Ocean at the End of the Lane, or possibly The Starless Sea. Just as a kind of palate cleanser between, let us know if you have any other opinions, any other nerd culture that you would like us to delve deeper into we're open to suggestion yep our inbox is open and we're happy to chat also in case you are unaware we were thinking of going to every other week for that intermission time just so that i have time to recreate our bank of things because i have slowly run out of lead time and things are maybe about a week ahead, and we're running headlong into a time where we can't record next week. Uh-oh. So once everything is done with the first book, we'll just take a small break, and we'll come back with a palate cleanser, and then after the palate cleanser, we will dive headfirst into The Wise Man's Fear. Now, just in case you are new here, and why in the heck are you starting with the end of the book... Go back to episode one. Or don't. It sucks. Go back to episode five. That's when we started getting good. Episode three? Maybe? I know episode eight was good. Start on episode eight. But why in the heck would you start on episode 42? Well. It's the answer. To life, the universe, and everything. I caught that as soon as I said it. Now that we have thoroughly gone down a rabbit hole, I'm going to forcibly... Steer us back and explain the podcast. Sorta. Each week we will be examining a section of the book, The Name of the Wind, through a chosen lens and figuring out what we can take from the text to apply to our real lives. We will also take some time to explore models of practical wisdom from the text with the neuristically for the of the week. After that, we will expand our understanding of our own world with an interesting fact and finally wrap things up with seven words from the book and seven words from our own lives. Micromachines by Galoob. Why do you keep making that joke? Because it's funny and it reminds me of my childhood. Carry on. So before we begin, as always, we have some disclaimers that we need to get out of the way. First of all, we are, as always, not affiliated with Patrick Rothfuss or his publisher, Daw Books, though wouldn't say no if such an opportunity arose. Second of all, our discussions will naturally assume that either A, you've already read the main books, The Name of the Wind and the Wise Man's Fear, as well as the other ancillary novellas and short stories in the continuity, or B, you're just a nihilist who wants to watch the world burn and you don't care about sports. Carry on, edgelords. <laughs> Either way, beyond this point, here be spoilers. Finally, a word to our community. While it's perfectly fine to critique the text as you read it, we're not going to stand for any abuse of the author responsible. And with that out of the way, 
it is time for me to do the 45 second recap. You got a timer ready for me? Do I ever have timers ready? No, I don't. We're just going to go with no, I don't. Why would I ever be prepared? I don't understand. What is this madness? <laughs> All right. Now that I have prepared the timer in three, two, one, go. Quoth wakes in a bed, all swaddled in cloth, a bandage round his head, and his mood full of wrath. He surveys the damage, and judges it light, and buys the makings of a sandwich, and leaves it at the hill to ease Dennis' plight. Quoth finds that she's left, as is her way, so he heads back to Traven bereft, to get answers to weigh. The girl Nina tells the tale of Mothin's delvin folly, about an urn not for sale depicting the Chandrian, not a dolly. With answers in hand, Quoth departs for Emre on a boat, and, when he lands, admits to Will and Sim that he should have left a note. That was great. I love the end. <laughs> and that's why you always leave a note. Correct. 27.77 seconds. No cherries for me. Meanwhile, you got raspberries in your future. I do. We need to solicit ideas from our audience. Or we just go with your suggestion, which was when your parents are out... Get yogurt and some raspberries and make me eat an actual raspberry. Delicious. Please get something else to go on the yogurt after I have suffered through my punishment. We'll see what we can do. We'll just film it and have your parents have a cameo. <laughs> as they watch my disgusted scrunchy face want to spit out what I put in it it'll be adorable yeah well they've snuck cherries into things for you before so you're adorable so anyway let's dive in shall we let's go for it and take my mind off of my impending doom I mean I'm just looking forward to it because it'll mean we'll have raspberries in the house and that's more for me I have made this point before, and I will continue to make it. You do all the grocery shopping. You could totally have raspberries in the house if you wanted them. All right. So for this section, we chose as our lens grace notes. One thing that struck me as I was reading is that note portion has multiple meanings that I think are really a lot of fun. And we'll get to each one of these. First of all, the grace note can be the musical thing, while it doesn't directly contribute to the melody of the music, adds just a little bit of extra zazz. Though it doesn't necessarily always have to be zazz. It can just be that resolution. And it tends to make things end satisfyingly. Right. There is a difference between... And <laughs> I mean, you really want me to hit that G chord, don't you? Yeah, I really do. It feels really incomplete. Thank you. 
Yeah, it's like when you go into Guitar Center and you play just the first part of a riff and then leave it hanging there and everyone else in the store hates you. <laughs> Things really don't feel right when they don't have a resolution. Yeah, and it doesn't even necessarily need to be like a positive resolution. You just have to feel like something has completed. There's also the literary definition where characters get some sort of resolution to their arcs. And then there's also the note that is just literally the courtesy that one gives to a friend when you're going out of town. For four days, suddenly, with no warning. Exactly. <laughs> so we'll get to all of these. So Quoth wakes up after his big crowning moment of awesome in a bed covered in bandages. Maybe a little excessively thorough on the bandages, but better safe than sorry. Not only that, but he does something that I think feels so real. So in another life, I was a graphic designer. The entire world, every advertisement, everything on TV, everything on a billboard, everything printed, everything has been designed. And I would notice every design decision, kerning, line spacing, font choice, everything. Yeah, I remember those days, like going to a restaurant with you. We didn't really get to have a conversation about what we were going to eat until after we'd had a detailed conversation about the graphic design choices of the menu. You love me. I married you, so I mean, obviously it wasn't a turnoff. <laughs> <laughs> I knew what I was getting into. Fair enough. It is better, though, than being a customer service rep for something that your parents would buy because I have the fun of just noticing when kerning is off. You, 10 years after you no longer have that job, have to answer questions about phones. Yep. And I also get the usual IT-related questions as well because I work in IT. But Kvothe, who has in his own head some expertise and in reality some training in anatomy and general medical stuff, sits up and feels all of the textbook things that are wrong with him. Deep tissue trauma, oblique strain, minor spraining of the sub something something something, what's it called? And then he pictures Arwell's face. And Arwell is frowning at him. Yeah, he should know better. A couple of things as we go along that I would like to point out. It is overcast above Traben. We live in a state that has been on fire. That's not clouds. That's smoke. Probably some ash in there. Especially so soon after the conflagration. So he looks outside and yeah, there's quite a bit of wreckage. And it seems like people are kind of moving about in a daze. Understandably so. They've been up late dealing with all of this. I don't think anybody has been able to get a proper lick of sleep. Combined with the fact that they spent all night burning and burying the Dracus. Right. Much to Kvothe's chagrin. So he talks a little bit with Nell, who's a girl who works at the inn. Interesting thing about this. Before he knows her name... He describes her as young and pretty, unassuming, the sort of girl that always works in a little inn like this. A Nellie. Nell. 
doesn't learn her name until she is berated by the innkeeper who then calls her Nell. And he's like, huh, go figure. And I'm like, huh, you're a namer. There's going to be another instance of this too that we'll get to in this section. Yep. So Kvothe doesn't seem terribly grateful for the bed and the clean clothes and... The medical care. Yeah, like as much as Kvoth complains about how Ambrose treats him, he treats the people of the town with about the same level of disdain. Just barely restrained contempt. Granted, he's not in a great place, probably has a mild concussion, and is sore all over. He's gonna be grumpy. You ever have a concussion? Nope. You don't want to have a concussion? Nope. You would not be a nice person with a concussion either. Yeah, when I was a camp counselor, I did a winter camp one year, and one of the kids was walking down one of our hills and ended up slipping and hitting his head, getting a concussion. So me and one of the other counselors drove him into town to go to the hospital, and we ended up having to keep him in the hospital and keeping him awake the entire time. He wasn't very grumpy. He was just really forgetful. <laughs> we eventually started messing with him a little bit just because we knew that it would get written over and he wouldn't remember it. He asked us what time it was about four hours after the accident and we told him and he goes, wait, no, it was only, I, how did I get here? It was, it couldn't have taken that long. And then finally we just said, well, that's because you're a time traveler and your flux capacitor works. <laughs> And he thought that was hilarious. He goes, oh, I must have a concussion, huh? We <laughs> said, yeah, you've got a concussion. We're just messing with you. <laughs> we needed that, though, because otherwise it would have gotten really boring just to answer the same questions over and over and over again. <laughs> when you're dealing with someone with a concussion, sometimes it feels like you're living in a Groundhog's Day moment and they're repeating themselves. It's interesting. Anyway, that aside out of the way. Yeah, so he's pretty grumpy and high-handed in terms of how he deals with the innkeeper as well. Pretty demanding. Yeah, well, this is the same person that he's already dealt with before once. He was already angry at this guy. He already had contempt for him for how he treated Denna. And now Foth is the one waking up in that guy's inn, having been patched up by the local sawbones. Yeah, he's not happy. I can understand. So he also is trying to find out if Denna came back, if Denna is okay. He's worried for her. Altruistically, I don't know. I think it's a mix of genuine concern and also desire to see her again. Part of that is I think he really doesn't want her to think that he abandoned her, which is rational. I can understand that. He doesn't need to be quite such a butthead, but he is. He also doesn't seem to have much concern for Nell, other than to say, yeah, this is a person who's probably getting beaten by the innkeeper. I'm like, really? Really? You have a lot of power here. You scared the living crap out of them by making a drab char the bar? You could scare the bejesus out of this guy and tell him that he needs to treat his serving person better. But no, Kvothe doesn't do that. No, why would he do that? 
Why would he use his power to help others? Well, and even as he uses the innkeeper's treatment of Nell and of Denna as sort of a justification for his casual cruelty, he doesn't actually do anything to remedy it. No. He doesn't say something like, hey, you need to treat the women in your life with more kindness and compassion. He doesn't say anything like that. He doesn't even do anything like saying, hey, that was my friend that you were mean to. It comes off more like he's just angry that this person isn't recognizing how awesome he is. He has no patience for this, though. He swindles the guy out of some food and some Avinish fruit wine, strawberry if he has it, and he threatens to burn the place down. The town has already suffered enough burning down. What the hell, Quoth? Right, and... Remember, this is a problem that Foth created. As we clearly stated last week. Well, Quoth loves to be thought a hero. He's really kind of not. And I think that's really one of the points of all of this. Quoth, the narrator, is acutely aware of his reputation. And I think some of this is him kind of taking the piss out of that a little bit. Because Quoth, the narrator, is a character who's been humbled to a degree. And a large part of that is reckoning with that youthful arrogance. And let's be clear, a lot of this is arrogance. I will say though, right now, this chapter feels a lot like the way Patrick Rothfuss tells stories. It's less, here's the action of what is happening and more, here is the action of what did happen. So Quoth takes the provisions that he's threatened out of the innkeeper and goes barefoot up to the top of the hill where he and Denna had been the night before. There's an order of operations problem here that you and I have discussed. Which we will get to in a little bit, but let's finish off this little section. The end result of this is that Quoth is mostly worried that Denna thinks that he has abandoned her, which has been said twice in this section, actually. I highlighted it twice because did she think I had abandoned her is seven words. Not my seven words for the week, but... It fits with all of the things, though, that Denna told him while they were together. It's clear that attachments in her life are pretty fleeting, and Quoth is really desperate not to be one of those people who's abandoned her. He doesn't want to be like the others. So then we get to Quoth having the courtesy to leave a note. Well, okay, so, a couple things. Denna has previously left a note for him, setting a precedent. Two, he clearly cares more about Denna than he does about Will and Sim. I think he cares more about Denna than he does about himself. Probably. At least he cares more about the idea of Denna, which is probably more accurate. He thinks of Denna, I think, as an omen of good things in his life and as someone who brings him joy. But I don't know that he necessarily always thinks of her complexly as someone with her own motives and her own needs, wants, desires, all that stuff. As a little bit of a note to this, I would suggest to anyone listening to go find the story of Jax and contrast it to how we view Quoth's relationship to Denna. And we'll especially touch on this when we get into Wise Man's Fear, 
because this is where I think that dynamic is seated in this section, and then it comes to fruition within Wise Man's Fear and how they interact with one another. I think as much as people don't enjoy parts of the Wise Man's Fear and find it to be a bit uneven, I think one of the things that gets people is that that book is where we start to see a deepening of Denna's character, and she starts to get a little bit more complexity and agency, and it's not just a given that she will want to be doing whatever it is Kvothe is doing, that she'll just want to follow along with him, and that as much as she likes him, maybe even loves him, doesn't want to just be the person who just fulfills a need for him. When he left, his mood was not a pleasant one, and his thoughts were not gentle or kind. I'm wondering if his thoughts towards himself are not gentle nor kind, or if his thoughts towards Denna are not gentle or kind. I think it's both. I think he's feeling a little bit of self-loathing here, and he's probably taking it out mentally on both her and him. That seems to fit with his character. And here's the resolution to the weird order of operations problem. He walks up a hill, like dirt, rocks, tree roots, ow, spins all day barefoot, and then comes back, climbs the roof of the inn, and gets his boots back. He knew where his damn boots were the whole time, right? That's what we think? Yeah, okay. Why? <laughs> Why is that the second thing you do? Yeah, it's a little bass backwards. So, while up on top of the roof of the inn, Kvothe is still pining away, hoping to see some sign of Denna. A fire at the top of the hill. Again, more fire. Probably the last thing this place needs. There's got to be a burn ban out. Right. And then he makes his way over to his makeshift heat eater and realizes one of the flaws in it but still manages to have his own superiority complex assuaged by the fact that it's the town people's fault because they used the water in their cistern to try to put out the fire that was being held at bay by Kvothe's genius I mean I don't know what he expected. Why would they know? Hey, I did this thing and I didn't tell you, and now you're doing something that seems logical, that kind of undoes what I did, and I'm mad at you now. I'm mad at you for following the proper procedures that would be the right thing to do in 90% of the situations. How else were they going to put out the remains of the fire? Right. He basically ate up their water supply Let's assume that the villagers recognized that his heat eater was working as it was intended. There were still fires to be put out, though. Even had they recognized that, they still would have been in a nearly impossible position because they would have needed to use their water anyway to put out the fires. So then they're in a damned-if-you-do, damned-if-you-don't position. And again, they're there because Kvothe put him there. So having recovered his shoes... And again, weird order. He goes back into the inn in a foul mood. And of course, now people want to know what happened. 
the constable and the mayor whisk him away to a private room and try to question him. And he's just like, I don't want to answer your questions. What are you talking about? Leave me alone. And he just lets them prattle on. He thinks very poorly of these two, but honestly, this is their job. Their jobs are literally to make sure that this village gets taken care of. This is not a large community. The people here have to take care of one another because they don't have a whole lot of outside assistance. And the constable and the mayor have an interest in making sure that they get answers. Apparently, though, in asking their questions, they showed both their hand, and he didn't have to really ask a whole bunch of questions of his own. Essentially, the town was both at risk and saved by the fact that they were having their harvest festival. And Kvothe is such a freaking narcissist that though there were a lot of bruises, singed hair, and somebody had their arm crushed, I look to have gotten the worst of it. I know, right? <laughs> he, he doesn't have any broken bones. <laughs> he just got a bump on the head. He's got some bruises and cuts. Yeah. He's been able to go up and about all day, barefoot. Plus, he's also not really thinking about what all of that property damage means to the livelihoods of the people in the town. Oh, yeah, no one was injured, seriously, except for some kid broke his arm. Oh, yeah, also, and the shop front was destroyed. Oh, yeah, also, and the front of the church was pretty well pulled down. I want to point out that Kvothe did that last one. Go ahead. All of this damage represents a lot of extra work for a town that doesn't necessarily have a whole lot of people who can help write these. And they have other things that they need to be doing. As a small town, there are a lot of superstitions. They believe that the Dracus is a demon. Let's face it, if I saw a Dracus, my first thought would be kaiju. It's not a kaiju. But my first thought would be, holy crap, that's a kaiju. And it doesn't matter that they're wrong. It's what they believe. Kvothe is not going to dissuade them from this belief. But he doesn't have to have contempt for them either. It's not like they have university education like he has. And like we've discussed earlier, even though Kvothe thinks of himself as poor and penniless most of the time, he still has a fair amount of privilege that he seems pretty blind to. Unless it gives him an advantage. In this case, they saw a mysterious battered figure who killed a demon and not penniless threadbare Kvothe. It gave me useful leverage. He does see it when it is blatant and in front of his face. Yeah, he's not afraid to use it, but he's never really willing to interrogate it. And then we get to the kind of epilogue to the Dracus's life. And it is unsatisfying, to say the least. We dug a pit, ten by two, ash and elm and rowan too, and they burned it and buried it. And Kvothe is sad, mad, disappointed, thinking about how much money he could have made. But my pony and my tuition money. Oh, dear. <laughs> uh, 
At the same time, quoth, you did it to yourself. And he closed his eyes and fought down the urge to throw things. I can very much sympathize with the urge to throw things when you're frustrated. Get me frustrated enough and I am just, I have pent up energy. I have no outlet. I want to pick up something that is satisfying to chuck at a wall and it has to have weight to it so a stuffed animal doesn't work. It has to be non-lethal so a, something that's a little too heavy wouldn't work. Something that's breakable probably wouldn't work. Something that would harm my cats or my cats. Those definitely wouldn't work. <laughs> Don't worry, I am not advocating doing anything at all that would harm or scare my husband or my cats. I just feel like I want to do something like, I don't know, break a drumstick on Rock Band, <laughs> which I've only done once. And it was a really, really, really bad day. And to be fair to Quoth, he's been having a pretty bad day. He woke up on the wrong side of the bed. <laughs> he eventually ends up asking if they can send anyone who knows anything about what might have been dug up at the Mothin Farm. Which kind of scares the mayor and the constable because, as far as they knew, that kind of talk never left the town. They look at each other and Kvothe assumes that they're thinking, how does he know about that? I lean back in the chair, fighting the urge to smile like a tomcat in a dovecoat. Saying the word dovecoat out loud. Coat. Mmm, yes. <laughs> Gonna leave that one there. Time goes by, Quoth fancies himself to be a trooper down to his bones and rather dramatic and impressive and I think he's full of shirt. And then he takes an entire day to luxuriate in this little town, still not caring that his friends are going, where in the crap is this guy? Where is our friend? Where is he? He should be in class. He should be somewhere nearby. He doesn't know that there's rumors going around about the mugging. And he doesn't care. Yeah, it's pretty thoughtless. So then we come to our second instance of, quote, naming a girl in this town. When he meets Verania and asks, I'm guessing no one calls you that. Are you a Nina? And she replies, that's what my grand calls me. Now, Nina is the one and only person who apparently is still living and has also seen what the Mothins dug up at the farm. Ostensibly, it's because she's the only one who's been able to keep her trap shut for this long. <laughs> <laughs> Turns out it was this old ancient urn depicting what Quoth surmises to be are the Chandrian. She says it was a big fancy pot about three feet high with all sorts of writing and pictures on it. Looks like some of the paints were shiny like silver and gold. And the pictures were of people, mostly people. There was a woman holding a broken sword. And we assume that that is Sturkus, one of the Chandrian. And a man next to a dead tree. Who we assume is Usnia. And another man with a dog biting his leg. I have no idea. 
Yeah, that one was weird. And then Quoth, of course, asked, was there one with white hair and black eyes? Ferule. She says, gave me the all-overs. Shivers. And then there was also one with no face, just a hood with nothing inside. There was a mirror by his feet, and there was a bunch of moons over him. You know, full moon, half moon, sliver moon. And there was also a woman with some of her clothes off. So we assume that that is Haliax. And it's interesting to see imagery of Haliax with the moon in its phases over him. Especially when we so closely tie Denna to the moon. And especially given that it's surmised that Jax from the story of Jax in the moon is a version of Haliax. I think the moon in that story is also Lyra, who we recognize from the story of Scarpy way back in Tarbian. So Kvothe is like, awesome, I finally got something. And meanwhile, she is freaked out that she is going to suffer the same fate as all of the people at the Moth and Farm. So what does Kvothe do? He gives her a placebo. Yes. <laughs> so yeah, he ends up giving her part of a sympathy lamp that he's been working on. It looks all fancy and he's afraid that she'll just eventually lose it and then be in a very bad state. So he lies to her more and says, now you have the charm keyed to you. So even if you're not anywhere near this piece of metal that has nothing to do with actually protecting you, you'll be fine. And it's notable that he says, over the last month, I had pulled a woman from a blazing inferno. I had called fire and lightning down on assassins and I had escaped to safety. I had even killed something that could have been either a dragon or a demon, depending on your point of view. But there in that room was the first time I actually felt like any sort of hero. If you are looking for a reason for the man that I would eventually become, if you are looking for a beginning, look there. You know, for someone who has, for so much of his life, been told that he's nothing, and for someone who knows that he's not, and to be recognized for once as someone of consequence, I can imagine that that would be an incredibly intoxicating feeling. Remember, he's 16, and a good chunk of his life, his very recent life, has been spent being repeatedly kicked and traumatized. So, yeah, I can imagine suddenly discovering that you matter to other people, to society, could be something that would really go straight to your head. So, the next day, he gathers up his stuff. This is the real grace note. He gathers up his stuff and makes his way down to the common room and then sort of barters a little bit with the innkeeper, who at this point seems a lot more generous. I think the innkeeper would like him to go away, please. Yeah, he's not worried about rates at this point. He's just wanting this little troublemaker, and that's really what Quoth is, out of his hair and not destroying any more of his property. So he goes down to the docks, asks about a dark-haired, pretty girl, because that's the only way that he knows how to describe people. Mind you, the page before, he's like, I hadn't realized this, but the girl that I am sitting next to and trying to comfort is very beautiful. Yeah, it's a really vague description. 
I mean, the dark hair, great, but pretty? There's different ways to be pretty, just bleh. But again, he questions, did she think that I had abandoned her? Turns out, yeah, she had come by the day before and had shipped downriver. So yay, Dena's safe? And meanwhile, all of that trouble that Kvothe had gone to to make sure that she had a meal and knew that he was thinking about her, it was for nothing. Eh, she's self-sufficient. And I think that that's a thing that Kvothe either willfully ignores or doesn't believe a girl can be. To be fair, I don't think that Kvothe thinks that anybody other than him can truly be self-sufficient. Okay. That's more damning of him in general, I think. He makes his way back down to Emre on the barge, goes and barters for his hastily acquired loan to be wiped out with Davy, apologizes to all of the people that he has disappointed, Threp, Manette, Anchor, his teachers, and he realizes that he is going to be in a world of hurt the next time that he has to pay tuition. Well, again, you did it to yourself, Quoth. And then he finally bothers to talk to his friends, Will and Sim. Gave them the whole story. Good on him. Whatever. Except for the fact that, of course, his parents were killed by the Chandrian and he has an irrational need to go hunt them down. What the hell is he going to do against the Chandrian? I don't know. He obviously doesn't have a plan for that. But now... He's been thoroughly chided by his friends saying, you have to leave a note, you idiot. And this actually is an excellent little grace note and bookend <laughs> because the very first time we see Coat adventuring when he's out to try and catch the remaining Skralin, he leaves a note <laughs> for Bast. Not a very good note. If you're reading this, I am probably dead. But he leaves a note. He's remembered at least one thing that seems to have stuck with him. <laughs> Good point. Remember that you matter to people. And if you have to leave unexpectedly, let people know. So at the very end of this chapter, he looks for dinner. But as always, looking did no good. Way to end a chapter on seven words. <laughs> and with that, it's time to talk about our Fernemos. Yeah. So who'd you pick? Ugh. You've got a few picks. I do have a few picks. I'm going with Nina because she has a very good memory for things. She only got a few seconds to look at this thing that is at that point basically contraband. She knows that she's going to catch hell if she gets caught. And so she doesn't tell anyone that this has happened, that she has gotten a chance to look at the urn. She's able to recognize that telling Kvothe about it is probably the one and only way that she'll be able to get this off of her chest with little to no consequences because the stranger is leaving. He's not telling anyone. And she feels compelled to keep this knowledge alive. Later on, we know that she is able to draw what she saw. The two seconds worth of seeing this She's able to recreate it for Kvothe. And I think deep down, she probably knows that the charm is BS. 
but it makes her feel better. Placebos make people feel better. Whether or not you actually know that vitamin C when you have a cold does nothing, just taking it anyway will help you feel better. Yep, that's why when I was like in college, my go-to trick when I would get sick was just to get a gallon of orange juice and chug it down. Which does nothing besides put a whole bunch of acid in your stomach. And I like orange juice, so... That sounds mildly painful, but you do you. Thank you for not yucking on my yum. Sure. But even knowing that a placebo is a placebo, it doesn't matter. It will still work if it was inclined to work in the first place. So I think in a lot of ways, Nina is somebody that does show some practical wisdom, especially with the not spreading the story or the description of this urn to the entire town. Yeah, because if she had, that would have just been another Chandrian event. Yeah, she'd have killed everyone. So she's my choice. I think that's a good choice. So with that out of the way, now that we've learned from Aristotle, let's learn from Elodin and talk about our interesting fact of the week. So this week is my turn for our interesting fact. Just to briefly preface this, I'm going to be discussing a little bit of a minor spoiler about A Beautifully Foolish Endeavor by Hank Green. This will deal with a very minor early plot point. So if you do not wish to know anything about what happens in that book, go ahead and fast forward through this part. But before you do that, if you have not read An Absolutely Remarkable Thing and A Beautifully Foolish Endeavor, highly recommended. A lot of fun. Anyway, spoilers now? Yes. In A Beautifully Foolish Endeavor, Hank Green's sequel to An Absolutely Remarkable Thing, one of the characters begins their journey by investigating mysterious internet outages in a rural New Jersey town. Now, that seems kind of vague and also really weird, but it turns out this isn't that far off from something that happened in real life when a series of mysterious internet outages plagued the Welsh village of Aberhosen for the past 18 months. Okay. Yeah. So... Every morning at 7 a.m., the villagers of Aberhosen experienced sudden internet disconnections and service degradation. And when internet connectivity has become more crucial than ever in day-to-day life, it's caused an immense amount of frustration and disruption. So every time the local internet service provider investigated, they couldn't find anything wrong with the network. But the issues kept persisting, and so they ended up actually even replacing large segments of the cables and everything. And it still kept happening. Okay. Yeah. Finally, the ISP sent a team of special engineers to test for electrical interference, which led them to the source of the problem, which was single high-level impulse noise, or shine as it's called. And this was coming from an ancient second-hand TV owned by one of the villagers. So shine makes me think of The Shining. Yeah, me too. (laughs) And other things inside of the Stephen King-averse. A little bit, yeah. So I guess the villager had bought this ancient telly secondhand at a garage sale, and it was his habit to turn it on every morning at 7 a.m. as he was drinking his morning coffee. And every time he'd turn it on, that's what would cause this sudden shine emission. And that burst would then interfere with the local ISP's DSL network. So they were using an older version of DSL, 
which was susceptible to this. It tends to occur when devices turn off or on, and it disrupts most DSL networks that were made back in the early aughts. It's out-of-date technology at this point, but this is a little tiny rural village in Wales, not exactly, you know, a bustling mecca. So when the owner of the offending TV learned about what his device was doing to his neighbors, he agreed to never turn it on again. <laughs> and the ISP, in the meanwhile, has made plans to upgrade to a modern fiber network. Can you imagine just how maddening it would be to try and troubleshoot this, though? Yes. Actually, yes, I can. Because I have previously had an experience where I made a little flash game for an assignment. And I used Adobe Illustrator to make some of my graphics, and I just copied and pasted it into Flash, Animate, whatever. And I was trying to code this little game to work for the assignment, and I just kept trying so hard to figure out why it wasn't working. I think you can remember that day. I was just like line by line on the code, just every single part, every single command, every single everything, just fine tooth comb. And I couldn't figure out what was wrong with it, but it wouldn't work. And it came down to, I had copied a text box that had no text in it from Illustrator when I grabbed my images and pasted them. And that one little empty text box made everything else stop working. And it was invisible. So it was something where the only way I would have seen it is if I selected all of the objects in my scene and then seen this little empty text box handle, tiny and hidden and uh, very frustrating. This reminds me of a problem management task that I was working on for about six months where we were having issues with this printer that would randomly stop taking documents in Chile. And we traced every inch of fiber that we could. We ended up going through all the guts of SAP and all sorts of integrations and everything trying to find the source of it. And it turns out that the problem really tended to occur mostly because the paper tray got full. <laughs> like the output tray would reach its limit and then everything would just stop because it couldn't output any more paper. <laughs> and that was literally it. Nobody checked this? No. Well, because we all assumed that everyone had already checked for these little things. Or it would be something like there was a paper jam. Meanwhile, because everything came to us from an infrastructure level and at a high level infrastructure level, so the guy whose job was to re-trigger these documents was in an office in another country. He was in Argentina. The printer was in Chile. Okay. He couldn't just virtually tap somebody on the shoulder and say, could you check the printer? It never really occurred to anyone to think about that. And then he ended up escalating it to the head of Asia Pacific and Latin America infrastructure who brought it up to us. So this is where my experience as a graphic designer working in a print shop would just have been so much better. You just look over and you go, hey, is it full? Hey, is it jammed? Those are the first things that I would ever think of when you say printer. You just didn't do the low level 
physical world check that's hilarious. Yeah, they didn't do those initial physical layer checks. And by the time it got up to the head of infrastructure who came burning down my door, <laughs> I had assumed that it had already been done. There you go. That's your problem. You assumed. <laughs> yeah. And that was also his problem and the problem of everyone who came before him. Yep. I got to know the folks down in Argentina and Chile pretty well over the course of those six months because I had a call with them every single day. Wait, it took six months to figure out that the paper was full? Yeah, because the guy who was our contact didn't sit at the actual printer facility. No, I know that. I got that. Yeah. That's... Yes. Oh my god. <laughs> oh yeah. This thing was gnarly. <laughs> and like I say, we exhausted everything else before we actually started looking at the printer itself. There was a lot. Okay. Again, as someone who worked with printers, just looking at the thing makes a whole bunch of sense. I don't understand this. And this is why everyone in IT hates printers. <laughs> I mean, I hate printers, too, but I at least looked at them. <laughs> the story reminded me a lot of that experience, and it's always just a fun reminder of how sometimes even just little things can make a huge difference in how the world fits together. So, what do you say? Interesting or not? I find it interesting. I also... <sighs> Man, if you had just talked with me about this particular problem before and mentioned, hey, there's a printer, and it's just randomly stopping, I'd have probably asked you, has anyone looked at the printer? I can't get over that part. I like your fact. Don't get me wrong. But I spent years having to deal with unjamming and troubleshooting printers. Like big industrial ones. <sighs> with that out of the way... I think it's time for us to talk about our seven words. I believe so. I believe you have the seven words from the book this week? I do. So what do you have for us? Something that feels just a little too real. Because a couple of days ago, we talked to your parents. and We're planning on having them come down here and spending a couple of days with us. Don't worry, everyone has been quarantining and making sure that they're not doing anything stupid when it comes to COVID. We are taking every precaution not to catch this thing. We're very trusting of Will's parents to make smart decisions, yada, yada, yada. They know how to wash their hands and wear masks and use curbside pickup. End of soapbox. But we were talking to them and somehow the topic of being old and in pain came up. And I have some chronic pain issues in my knees and my feet and my hips. And it almost felt a little like his parents were saying, but you're half our age. You couldn't possibly know what pain is like just from being old. And I'm like, Kermit the Frog facing. But again, this feels very, very real. Moving was a lesson in punitive anatomy. That's a good one. I very, very much felt that in all of my keyed up muscles, in my feet and my knees and my tailbone and my back and everything. 
just on top of the isolation from quarantining and all of that wonderfulness, we don't really have the opportunity to go many places and walk around and just move in a way that we were able to before this whole thing happened. And I can definitely tell how the stress and the lack of real out time has affected my body. And so, you know, a couple paragraphs in and I just see that moving was a lesson in punitive anatomy. And I'm like, yes, yes it is. Ugh. That had to be my seven words. Makes sense. So mine are words from life. And this is courtesy of one of my coworkers. And it is, my name is Waffle. I'm forking lost. So my coworker just recently got himself a little corgi puppy named Waffle. And when it came time for him to make a tag for his new little canine pal, that's what he ended up putting on it. <laughs> It's just hilarious. I just imagine this forlorn little corgi looking up at you saying, I'm fucking lost. <laughs> and Waffle is adorable. Right now, Waffle has one ear that points up and one ear that points down. If you would like to follow Waffle on Instagram, he is corgi lamping, all one word. C-O-R-G-I-L-A-M-P-I-N-G. Very strongly recommend that follow right there. And I will say this, Waffle's exploits have been a light in a dark time. Just with all of the fear and anxiety and uncertainty, it's been nice to just see this cute little puppy who wants to hang out with his human and snuggle up. It's very cute. I get messenger dings every once in a while, and it's just a picture of Waffle. Waffle is our team's unofficial mascot at this point. <laughs> well, with that... I'd like to thank you for potting with me. Thank you for potting with me. And thank you for listening to Tales from the Waystone. Join us next week on Tales from the Waystone as we discuss chapters 84 through 85 of The Name of the Wind through the lens of Pyrrhic victory. We would like to thank our friend Shawnee Jang for our theme music. And many thanks to Patrick Rothfuss for creating a world that we've enjoyed exploring. Audio production, editing, and social media coordination, courtesy of me. Phoenix McCullough. Project management and writing, courtesy of me, Will McCullough. If you would like to help support us, please consider becoming a patron on our Patreon page, patreon.com slash waystonepod. And as always, here's to one more day above the roses. To one more day above the roses. Ding! Ding. Damn it. <laughs> Damn it. <laughs>